There is yet another dimension that is beyond that which is familiar to us. A dimension that is as vast as the universe itself and free of the bonds of time. It is the ground where light and dark were born, where science and superstition are close relatives, and it resides somewhere between the pit of our fears and the summit of hope itself. This is the dimension above our own, divided by nothing more than the air we breathe. It's here, now. Welcome to Spooktacular. His name is Ezekiel. He spent his time on this earth experiencing incredible visions. He was a man who saw that which is beyond our scope of understanding. A man who groaned in pain with knowledge of slaughter that would soon be set upon Israel. A man instructed to warn his people that God was sharpening his sword and would soon draw it against the wicked. The time is somewhere near the 6th century BC. The Jewish people have been exiled to a new empire called Babylon. God is at work through the lives of the few who are faithful to him. Many of them are referred to as prophets. We find our man receiving word of the Creator's plans to come against Israel. His instruction to preach against the sanctuaries of these people and to weep for the great slaughter at hand. All right. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be together. Thank you guys for being here. And for those of you watching online, uh, welcome to today's uh, message, Spooktacular Week 5. I know you're thinking to yourself, but Halloween was yesterday. There are still plenty of spooky things happening in the world around us, so we will, uh, we're going to wrap this series up in another week or so, so uh, we're going to continue on. And I just want to reiterate that we are covering material on the midweeks. And so on Wednesday, I'm uploading a video that covers uh, typically about four more chapters so that we can get through this in a six-week period. So please uh, uh, go check that out if you want to go deeper. We also have study guides uh, that are available online that have additional content that I'm actually not able to get to during our time of teaching. So uh, just a, a quick, uh, 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 I guess, uh, lead up to today in case you missed this past Wednesday. We're going to be talking about Egypt in just a moment and Egypt's uh, what will be what God says will be taking place for the Egyptians during this time of chaos in Israel. And so we've spent a lot of time doom and gloom, right? I mean, this is heavy stuff. We're reading this and Israel is, is being told your behavior is not as I've instructed. There's consequences for it. And, and, and now we're going to be hearing a little bit about what is going to be happening in Egypt. But just as a, a precursor to this, on the midweek, I talked about the enemies of Israel and the consequences that they faced. And so over the course of a handful of chapters there, what we get is we get just a, 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 a like a spattering of information on each of Israel's enemies. And, and then it slows down and we get this picture of a nation called Tyre 
And the reason that we get this slowdown there, and this is significant, so I really want to encourage you to go back. That's why I'm pausing, is that what God does is he, he takes the, the, the nation of Tyre and he uses it as a parallel to the enemy, specifically to the spirit of Antichrist that will be at work. Jesus talks about this in his ministry, the spirit of Antichrist that will be at work even at the highest levels of leadership. And so Tyre is an image for us of what can happen in a nation and what it might look like even in those last days before Jesus's final return to establish the kingdom of, uh, of heaven for eternity right here on earth, what that might look like. So go backwards. Now he's going to slow down again, and he's going to focus on Egypt. And so that's going to be the thrust of the next four chapters. And because there are several points I want to talk about, I'm not going to be able to go verse by verse. I've tried to do that where I can. Uh, so we're going to cover some different sections within these four chapters. And I'm not covering all of it. Again, in the study guide, I have additional notes uh, that, that I just, again, I can't get to in our uh, time this morning. So we're going to begin in chapter 29, looking here at verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. So just a, a precursor that, that the word that God is giving to Ezekiel right here is a word for Egypt. Now, I, I, I'll remind you, and I've said this several times, why does this matter? The New Testament uh, authors, they all believed that the Old Testament mattered because they quoted it regularly. They believed what was inside of what we call the Old Testament. And they were, were consistently encouraging people saying like, you need to know these things in order to understand the, the, the New Testament covenant that, that we love and appreciate. We need to understand the foundation that it's built on. It exists because of a, of a foundation that was laid and so we're going to listen here for a moment, get a glimpse into how God feels about Egypt and those that were in, uh, that worked with Egypt. So the first thing I'll say about Egypt is that they had enslaved the Hebrews. I think this is important for us to remember, okay, that these were, these had not been Israel's friends historically. In fact, we don't really see anything in Scripture where it's like, hey, they're working hand-in-hand -in, -hand in harmony. There were attempts at that, but they never established that. The second thing that I will say is that they worshiped wicked gods. Remember that when, when God brings the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt, out of slavery, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And I'll remind you of this. God says, hey, I want to meet with all of the children of Israel. Like, I want to meet with everybody, but they are afraid. They are afraid, most scholars believe, because they had been a part of a society that had all these different gods and views on gods. I mean, even when we look at historical texts, like we'll take, the, uh, uh, we'll take a, a, a god like Moloch and we'll see all these different perspectives, right? We know that they sacrificed children to Moloch, but we also know that they believe that maybe at times he was in charge of the rain or maybe he was in charge of fertility. And, and, and there's all these little, these little these little different teachings around who this these gods were. So there's you just got to imagine there's a ton of confusion and not one of them ever showed up and did anything. 
There was, there was never a miraculous sign and wonder, and now they have been led out of slavery with a firebite in the night, a cloud during the day, and they have come across a, 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 a ocean that has been divided. They walked on dry ground, and then they watched that come back in and collapse down on their enemies, right? So just some perspective, they haven't just been introduced to this new God. They've been introduced to the first God in, in, in their lifetimes that shows up with incredible authority. And he says, I want to meet with them. And this scares them. Why? Again, what, did it, what, did, what does history show us? It showed us that the gods were constantly angry. And so there was a fear of the gods. So Moses ends up meeting with God by himself. He receives the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are, they are the basis of what we would call the law, but the law was about a better way to live. Oftentimes we think about uh, law and we think about uh, rules as being negative, right? It's like, it's like, who are you to make these rules? Have you ever tried to play a board game without rules? right? I, I like to play board games. I'm not going to lie. I enjoy it. Uh, and and I, I not only do I not enjoy playing a game with no rules, because I wouldn't even attempt it, like when the rules are loosey-goosey, I sit on the outside. I don't play. And when, and when people are fighting each other in a game, I get so uncomfortable. I don't want anything to do with it. So, so I, I will literally, like my, my kids love to play Mafia, where they're trying to figure out who the killer is. Do you, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? If you don't, look it up. It's very vile for a pastor's family to be playing. I'm just kidding, um, maybe. And so, so, so they love to play, and there's all these accusations. And every time that I get roped into playing, I end up lying, right? And so then I end up with anxiety. I'll go home telling Carmen, like, I hate myself. I can't play this game. And it's not like I'd never tell a lie or it's like, but like to intentionally lie, like to get caught in the moment and say something and then be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. It's one thing. But to sit there and premeditate and build my lie and then drag people into my lie and then to look at our bass player in the eyes, right? and tell him a bold-faced lie. I did this recently, and I, how many times did I apologize to him? Dude, I am so sorry for doing that, right? I, I need rules, and I need boundaries, and then I'm going to have a much better time. The, the, the whole idea uh, of, like, the, the Western prescribed anarchy is not my cup of tea. Like, I'm not looking for that, not from just the violence perspective, but, like, I, I don't want a big government. I just, I just want to know what the rules are, right? What are the rules for engagement? This is what God's trying to do is he's saying, look, you've been living with this chaos, right? And you've been hearing all these things. I just need you to know a few things up front. Here's a really good one. It will radically change your life. There are no other gods. It's me and I'm here. I created you. I created this world. I want to interact with you. Can you imagine if you have been wrestling with the idea that maybe there is a worm God that is responsible for bringing the worms into your cot at night at this whole time, and you've been thinking like the gods are angry at me, and you discover that that is totally because you don't bathe, right? And that there's one God out there, how freeing that could be, right? And that's what, God's, that's what God's attempt with this instruction is. The problem is, is that there is always somebody else sitting there ready to contest it. And that's the, that's the outlying nations. They're constantly contesting it. But the, Egypt was involved in worshiping wicked gods. Why would I say wicked gods? Because in order to worship their gods, it required things like child sacrifice. 
like engaging in extramarital sexual encounters and orgies. And I mean, it just, right, Zoe said, ugh, that's what I'm talking about, right? You all felt that in the room when I said it, right? And this is the wickedness of it, right? And, it's, and these aren't difficult things for us to kind of establish. The third thing that I would remind us about Egypt is that their leaders claim to be gods. When somebody, when, even when somebody can in a joking way call themselves a god, like that's problematic, right? Right? I, I mean, the confession of our lips, right, is, is, is how we are known. And so they claimed to be gods. They wanted to be worshipped as gods. And they're not the first. Uh, just recently, in the last couple of months in China, they put an, an edict out saying that the, the churches were to remove images of Christ and replace them with images of Mao and uh, President Z. I think that's how you say it, the XI, right? To put them up and that they are to be worshipped. So, so just so that you think like, oh, this Old Testament, nobody does this anymore. No, they do. And, 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 and the expectation is that they worship that while they're making our iPhones and our Android devices. That's it. It don't feel good. I don't, I don't like saying it, but it's the reality of our world right now. And so you had leaders that considered themselves to be God. And the fourth thing I would say is that they had killed King Josiah. This is the most recent interaction that's so damaging to this relationship, because who was Josiah? We talked about this when we started Daniel. Look back at 2 Kings chapter 23. This is Josiah, eight years old. He discovers the Old Testament, the, 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 the manuscripts that had been hidden. He discovers that they haven't been living the way they were supposed to. And instead of going, well, I think there's maybe a different way to kind of study this, interpret this, like we can talk about these things. I mean, I don't really want to give up all of my meat to, you know, you know, that's sacrificed to other gods, so maybe we can figure a way to bring in harmony. He fell on his face and said, God, whatever you would have, right? And this is what it says about him. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So what does that tell us? That tells us that this young man probably about 18 years old at this time that he really discovers who God is, is sold out. And he's ready to do whatever it takes. And he's trying to defend Israel, which is already in the midst of judgment. And, and the scripture says that Egypt comes into town and they ultimately kill him. Look here at verse 29. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. Megiddo being the, uh, uh, the uh, Armageddon, right? That's how this is the Hebrew in the uh, uh, Greek. It's Armageddon, so it's an actual location. And he goes, this is where Josiah is killed. And, and I argue that it is Josiah's influence that so radically changed a small portion a, a, of a generation. And why do I say a small portion? Because there was still so much wickedness in Israel, but somebody was getting it, and they were investing in their own children. And at the very least, we know that people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel as prophets, and then Daniel uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they end up in a place where they understand who God is and they'll walk in righteousness. 
Egypt takes that king's life. The fifth thing is that the Hebrews had tried to ally with them. After all of this, right, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he'll try to, uh, 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 he'll take the first group into exile and he'll establish a king there, some rulers in place. And what do they do? They try to go and ally with Egypt. And, And Ezekiel talks about this. God says that you should not have done that. They try to go and be their friends, right? Because at least this way, if we can become an alliance, we can take out uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the problem, it doesn't work like that for them because Egypt has its own judgment coming on it. And that's what we're getting into. But th- just, just some perspective on who we're talking about when we talk about Egypt here. So verse 15, we're going to skip down. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Can I tell you something? When we go way back in history, Egypt is the cradle of civilization, the first true mighty world power. After this, historically speaking, based on secular works, Egypt has never been a world power again. Never again. And they've never been in a position where Israel would be in need and be able to call out to Egypt to help. God said that that would never happen again. They would never be in a position for that. And historically, we have seen that they have never been a dominant world power again. And so prophetically speaking, To this day, we would say that's 100% true, and God called it then through Ezekiel. Verse 19, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. Let's just talk about economy for a moment. Egypt has a bustling economy. This is one of the things that is so confusing to historians because they find all of this incredible wealth in Egypt. And it's all, they can't figure out, like, how did they move from this incredible society to not maintaining what they had put together? I mean, it's clear that for for some period of time, they maintained the pyramids, they maintained the structures, they maintained their wealth, and then something happened, and all of a sudden, they're not maintaining it anymore. God says, I'm going to take the wealth, I'm going to put it into the possession of, so your economy has built up this wealth, I'm going to give it now to your enemy, and they're going to use it to pay the wages of the soldiers that will be coming in and bringing destruction to you. And that's exactly what happened. Let's move to chapter 30, verse 4. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When when the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. Cush and Put and Lud and all Arabia and Libya and the people of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. Now, I want you to watch this because this is this was studying this this last week. I was telling Carmen, like, it was just 
really just blowing my mind. It was really wrecking my heart in, in, in a good way because I just want you to know, like, like, like there are so many conversations that we have with our peer groups, right, through the week. And I don't know about you, but this right here to fall in line, the way that it has fall, fell, fallen in line is really powerful for me. So here it is, Egypt, right? We've, we've talked about who Egypt is, and it talks about all of these groups of people who were in league with them partnering with them. Watch verse 6. Thus says the Lord, those who support Egypt shall fall and her proud might shall come down from Migdol to Syene. They shall fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord God. This word in here, uh, it says that those who uphold, right? That means to support, uphold, sustain, these groups were not upholding Egypt in the sense that like they were the ones that were protecting Egypt to be this mighty thing. They were the ones that were trading with them and investing in their economy and ultimately were a part of a network that helped Egypt sustain its might and its power. And what does God say? God says, Egypt, you are wicked and you have come after my people. You have come against me. And I'm not just going to bring judgment to them, but I am going to bring judgment with those who have partnered with you, those who have come and been in support of you. There are consequences for them. And so these partners of Egypt now begin to get named. And they get called out for being engaged in what Egypt was ultimately doing. And that which Egypt was doing, God said, was not holy. It was wicked. It was not acceptable. Let's go down to chapter 31 and verse 3 here. Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. And we're moving into chapter 31, and what's happening here is uh, God pauses from 29 and 30. He's laying out these details of consequences, right? I'm, here's who I'm coming for. Here are the basics of why I'm coming, right? And, and I'm, I'm just like I'm going to judge Israel because Israel has not done what I've asked them to do, right? Which when we, let me, let me think about this. When, when, we, when we don't do the things that we're instructed to do from Scripture, right? When we don't, we profane God's name. That's, that's the imagery. That's what God keeps saying. He keeps saying that, that, and this is specifically for Israel, is that you, you claim to be followers of Yahweh. You claim me as your God, right? But you profane my name because you engage in the practices I tell you not to engage in, with others and those that worship other gods around you. And so what happens is that instead of God being lifted up on high, and this is why it's important, I'll get to it, why it's important for God to be lifted up on high. So he says, but, but you do this, I'm not lifted up on high, and therefore others buy into this like hybrid faith. And then the reason that it's important for God to be lifted up on high and the, and the importance of us living our lives in a way that honors him right, is because when we don't do it, the faith that we profess, but we walk out being different, is the faith that others get invited to. 
And so if I claim that, hey, I love God and he's almighty and I believe in his word, but I don't walk out the things that are in there and then somebody else is considering whether or not to to join the faith and they're looking at the way that we talk and the way that we live compared to the things that are taught within word within the word we are we're creating this hybrid faith and that was what was happening in Israel and who was it impacting it was impacting the next generation so this wasn't a matter of just like simply like God's angry and I've got to you know punish them it was that and this is why he keeps saying so that you will know that I am the Lord God is because if I don't do this thing Generation after generation, which what do we understand about generations? We understand that generations increase population. That's why we have moved from probably what was 200 million people on planet Earth uh, at the time of Christ to now we're in the billions, right? So we're talking about an expanding base of people. And God says that I know what's coming. I know who who has got to hear the message. And it is becoming so perverted that if I don't take time to cleanse it and purify it, they will be the ones that really suffer. And so this is the problem. And so he comes in and he's talking to Egypt and he says, look, he begins to compare them to Assyria. And this is, a, this is an allegory that is a very recent event for them. And so Egypt had been in uh, uh, under Assyrian rule uh, when Nebuchadnezzar and his dad had begun the process of trying to overthrow the Chaldeans, begin to try to overthrow the Assyrians. It created this giant war, and Egypt reaped the benefit of that because it got them distracted. And Egypt had been playing into this, trying to keep that war going, hoping that they would ultimately weaken themselves down to where they could swoop in and, and take it over. So God uses, he creates an allegory for them real quick that they will understand because Assyria had been the world power for a very brief time over them at this point. Uh, now, I'm going to jump into chapter 32 from here. Again, a lot of information for you to go back to. And we're going to take a moment and look at a few verses here. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. Verse 4, and I will cast you on the ground on the open field. I will fling you and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you and will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. This is pretty graphic. And the reason I want to pause on this is that this was meant, this language, for us, we would go, well, this reads like something out of The Walking Dead, right? Like, this is like a survival moment, and, and who's going to still be there? But for them, that's not what this would have read like. This, this would have been, so in the, in, the, in the material that's being presented, the, pro, the prophetic word, for them, this would have communicated that this is an imagery of suffering's end. So in order for the birds to come and the beasts of the field to come and to, to, to be feasting on their bodies, this means that death has come. And so what, what God's saying is, is, and what they're hearing is that there's going to be a, a sword that comes. And we do know that there's a scattering uh, of the Egyptians across all countries is what it says. But for the most part, this is radically different than what Israel's getting. Israel's going to get, uh, what was it, a third by pestilence, a third by exile, and a third by the sword, right? Egypt is going to, to be treated very differently. 
and the sword is coming for them, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of suffering. And what God wants to do now is he wants to talk to them about the afterlife. And so this chapter is challenging some of their post-death views. And, and if you have taken any history in life, you know that many, many religions and uh, nations in, in history's past have had varying views on what happens after you die. And we know that the Egyptians believed in an afterlife, especially for those that were high up in leadership, uh, those that were the pharaohs, those that were uh, the, the leadership among them. And so they would be you know, wrapped up into mummies, sarcophaguses, put into these uh, uh, fancy, uh, uh, not coffins, but I forget what they call them, tombs, yeah, something like that. And then we discovered this later, but they believed that that was all a part of a process for their afterlife, right? So what does he say? He says that instead of that process that you hold to be so dear, that, that way of mourning, right, that you have, what's going to happen is your bodies are going to be in a different position, they're going to be exposed so that nature will come and feed on them. And, and, and this is striking at something. This is hitting a really, a really tender spot, uh, most scholars believe, for the Egyptians because they held so much into this eternal afterlife that they would experience. And there was a process, though, to how they would be able to step into that, and that was going to be taken from them. Let's go to verse 7. He says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. So he uses this language here, and he says, uh, he says I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. Okay? Uh, I, I will cover the sun. And this is this imagery. And so like we, we read this, I would read this and be guilty of this, just reading it and being like, oh, this is going to be like a supernatural like eclipse or something like that, some type of event. And, it, and that may be, but it's less about, um, this is less about, because they're going to be dead, right? Okay. So this is less about them seeing this as an ominous sign, but this is really more about imagery of the, for the widespread effects so that because when there's an eclipse, right, it's not just like, oh, everybody that lives in Savannah sees the eclipse, right? The eclipse can be seen by giant portions of the world. God says that there is going to be signs in the heaven, in the heavens when this happens, and it's going to be a sign not to you. Again, you'll be dead, but it will be a sign to those that live around the world. And this is imagery that I'm going to move in and bring judgment on you for your actions, uh, and I'm going to make sure that the story is being told. We'll get to more of this in just a moment. Verse 13, he says, I will destroy all its beasts from beside many waters, and no foot of man shall trouble them anymore, nor shall the hoofs of beasts trouble them. So it's going to be, it's going to get so bad that even the animals in the area are going to begin to die off. Then I will make their waters clear and cause the rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. And uh, just some perspective, and, and Ezekiel addresses this, but Pharaoh claimed to have been the one that created the Nile River. So he says that because I'm God and I spoke this thing, I created, I drew it out, and I filled it with water. So when God is addressing, what he's addressing right here is he's specifically addressing this 
idea or this concept that the Egyptians were told to believe that Pharaoh had created the Nile River. And he says, and it will, I will turn it clear, but it will run like oil, says the Lord. Verse 15, when I make the land of Egypt desolate, and when the land is desolate of all that it that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, they will know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation that shall be chanted. The daughters of the nations shall chant it over Egypt and over all her multitude. Shall they chant it, declares the Lord God. So he says, he, he gives this picture of just, it's, it's a, we're kind of getting to the end of this. This is how bad it's going to get. And he says that, what, there's going to be a lamentation. And I've talked on this a few times, but there's something significant here that I want to mention about lamenting. Uh, so just as a reminder to, to this idea of lamenting, lamentation, it is this idea of wailing or chanting, right? And, and for us, we would kind of equate that because we, we don't have a society where we all get together and wail together or chant. We lament by, by feeling the pain that somebody else has, right? So we, we grieve, uh, we lament our own loss, our own pain. We'll lament with those who are suffering. And so we lament with someone in their pain, right? And we talk about the importance of this. Sometimes things happen, right? There, are, there is a loss of life. This is relevant right now in our society as we have seen uh, 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 the loss of individuals during police engagements. And I get the hot topic nature of that. But sometimes when somebody's hurting, like we may have an opinion and we might go, well, I see it this way or I have an opinion, but, but because there are brothers and sisters in Christ, it's perfectly acceptable for us to not have all the answers and be there and be okay with hurting with them. That's what it looks like when somebody is in pain, whether we understand the pain, we can, we can be there to lament with them. And that, that's a powerful thing. That's a, that's a way to build a relationship with people right? Now, listen to what I'm saying here. I'm saying lamenting. That is where we hurt with somebody. That's not where we justify things or call things okay or call things wrong. That's a separate, that's a separate thing. Those conversations are not the same as lamenting. Lamenting is in the process of the hurt. But look at what God uses this. Con he uses this in a different context than the individual pain of somebody, right? Uh, uh, so there is, we lament with someone in their pain, and that's the way that we've been talking about this a lot lately, but he uses this, and he says that you will lament because of someone's pain. And this little, this is subtle here, but it's very real. And so somebody who is, who is hurt, and I don't have the fear of being hurt the way that they did, right? I'll lament with them. But when somebody is experiencing pain that I'm afraid I might feel myself, it's a different type of lamenting. And he says, this is what's going to happen. People are going to see what happens to Egypt, and it's going to be so bad that those who survive in the surrounding nations, it's going to be so bad that people are going to lament because they are afraid of how this could happen to them. And again, so much... I feel like very relevant and powerful concepts right here in these few chapters for us today. And he says that it's going to be bad. And people are going to lament and, and feel the pain because of their own fear that this could happen to them. 
And for me, it reminds me that, that even in our own societies, there can be different types of lamenting happening around us. We can lament with those who are hurting and we don't understand their hurt, but then we can lament because we can be in fear that it might happen to us. Verse 19, whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. This is a, a literal question, right? So we would read this, and again, we'd read this first. I would read it, and I would think, what does this have to do with anything? But in context, your body is dead. Animals are feasting on it. The animals are dead. You are laid there now. And he says, whom do you surpass in beauty? Because you have claimed in vain that you are great and you are beautiful and you are the best. But now who do you surpass in beauty? No one. Answering this question in a literal sense says, there is no one who you are more beautiful than. And this is really the, the, the sum issue for Egypt was their vanity and their pride. And every time that God tried to show up, and God did, right? God sent Moses. They experienced the catastrophe for them at the Red Sea. Whenever God would show up, and God would show up with my power and reveal himself, they would not listen to what God had to say and set down their own beliefs. This is the, this is the difficult thing about truth, right? is that if people don't want to receive truth, then the truth can't do anything for them. When people receive truth, the truth sets you free. And they would not receive truth. And so they continued in their own pride, their own arrogance, and their own uh, vanity, and ultimately it leads to this place. And so who are you more beautiful than for the Egyptians, no one. Verse 20. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away and all her multitudes. So what does this mean when it says delivered to the sword? Right? We're wrapping up chapter 32. We're getting to the end of this. And he says here, he says, they shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword drag her away and all her multitudes. And I want you to think about how we use the word delivered, right? We use the word delivered in a positive context, right? When I get online and I place my order and it gets delivered, that's a good thing, right? Especially when it can be delivered right now. We were uh, on vacation last year in Disney World, and we were trying to find an HDMI cable uh, because we wanted to watch The Mandalorian uh, Season 1. I know we're in Season 2 right now, for those of you that are cool. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and, and, and so we called up to the front desk, and we were like, hey, do you have an HDMI cable so we can hook up our laptop to the TV? They said, no, we don't, but you can order one on Amazon. I was like, can't wait till tomorrow. The episode dropped today. I forgot my HDMI cable. She said, oh, no, no, no. They deliver within an hour here. And I was like, what? What is this ma black magic that you've got where you have it to me within an hour, right? Like I'm looking for next day in Savannah and sometimes two days and then God forbid three to seven days on some of it, right? Right? You get it in one hour. 
So just think about how we look at this, right? The word deliver, uh, this word deliver, oh, lost my clicker here, uh, where it says this, uh, you can go to the next slide when you're able to, it says to be given over to, to be set free, all right? And so the word delivered in the Hebrew is to be given over to or to be set free. Again, this is a positive uh, perspective when we're talking about it. But what does God say? God says that he says that they will be delivered. Let me go back here. Delivered to the sword. And the language here for them is, is that, that this, is, this is actually a good thing. And I know like we, we think to ourselves like, like how, how can that be? Right? And I can give you all the little reasons why I would say that I see it this way because of their corrupt culture, but that doesn't fit it for that doesn't fix it for you. The reality is, is like we have to come to grips with I'm reading this and God is saying these things about Egypt and those that were partnering with Egypt in their wickedness and the consequences that were coming, and God saw that deliverance to the sword as a fulfillment. Something that is positive. Verse 32 here, he says, I spread terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord God. And this, this is my, my, my final thought in here. As I was reading through this, and I don't know if you've been reading ahead, but this language, for I spread terror, I was like, man, like we're getting this picture of God that is not in our kids' Bible, right? It's not in our Sunday school little felt board lesson, right? God says, I deliver them to the sword, and then he uses this language, I spread terror. I started, I started digging into like, God, what does this mean, right? Why, do you, why are you using this language? Because, you know, I want the, I, God is love, and God is happiness, and God is joy all the time. And uh, uh, before, I, before I explain it, uh, Jesus used language uh, when he was ministering that if we don't have a historical context, we will miss some, some, some real value in some of the things that he said. Um, when Jesus used the language and he talked about being the bread of life, right, that was not just like, hey, this is a really cool phrase and I'm going to use it and it's sustenance because we would read it like that. But when we understand that Caesar at the time would starve regions he was starve areas to where they were desperate for food and then he would show up so just before he would come and they would host a bread parade and people would be starving and then they would show up to the parade because why uh, Caesar's here and he's going to be giving away food and my family hasn't eaten in a week so where am I going to the parade. And who am I thankful for? Caesar, because I'm going to be fed. And Caesar would declare, I am the bread of life. So Jesus wasn't just like, look, I don't want to rock the establishment. He was using the active language of the day coming from the government. And he said, Caesar ain't really the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. And this is the same thing that's happening here in the Old Testament. This was the language that the pharaohs used, right? They're getting this word before they die. This is prophetic. Let me tell you what's about to happen to you, Egypt, right? Let me explain to you what's about to go down. And he ends this thought, right? 
using this language, for I spread terror. Now, if you're Pharaoh and this is what, this is your saying, we're going in to take this land because why? I spread terror. This is the thing that, this is my mantra. Everybody's got their t-shirt. Let's go. I spread terror. And then here comes Ezekiel with this prophetic word and he's like, oh, you think you spread terror? But God spreads terror. That makes me sick at my stomach to even think about, right? Like, like God says, you've been doing it all right, but let me show you how it's really done. Like you've been giving people bread for a little while, but let me show you how bread's really given out. You've been, you've been given terror for a minute. Let me show you how terror is really handled. So this is, this is pointed at the nation and the nations that are partners. This is their language. And then he also uses this language here, and he uses this throughout the text, but here in this final verse, I'll touch on it. And he, he says, they laid to rest among the uncircumcised, right? And this wasn't a call that like, well, Egypt, you didn't get circumcised, so that was your problem. That's not it. This is for those who are the Hebrew people who are reading this because it is a part of the text that is presented to them right? And inside of this language, they're reading this. And what does he say? He says, Egypt, you're going to, you're going to die. And where will you be buried? You will be buried among those who are not my own. Those who are not my own. So even though God was bringing correction to Israel and it was, it was a tough judgment, it was the wrath of God. This is what he kept saying. He kept saying, but I will be with you. You're going to go. This is going to happen. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. This is different than a dad coming in and beating on his family and walking out the door to crush a six-pack and throw darts in the backyard. This is that picture of, hey, I've got to bring some discipline here because you're out of control, but I'm going to be here with you. And what does that mean? That means that, that when it's done, Whose table are they coming to eat at, right? I might bring discipline to my kids, but do you think that means that they're not coming to sit at the table with me? That, that I stop providing and stop caring for them? That, not at all. But the Egyptians, because they have denounced God and never been his, he says, you will be among those that are separated from me. You will know that I am God. Hear this. This is, this is good. I think it's great. He says, you will know that I am God, but it'll be too late. You will know it. You will be certain. You will know that I am God, and you will be separated from me. That we would know him and be with him is the prize, is the gift that he gives freely. And so it really, at the end of the day, is about those who are marked. And so for each of you, as children of God, if you've made that decision for Jesus to be Lord of your life, the call inside of these texts is to listen to what God has to say, to believe that he knows best, 
I mean, this is, this is the, the hope of any parent, right, who is really engaged in their children's lives is that we would be able to raise our kids to understand that what we want is good for them, not bad. What we want is that they would have a better life, not a worse life. And, and anybody who's a parent will completely be able to say amen to this. That's not easy. There's a lot to get through. There's a lot of personality and social influence, and, and, and there's so much that we have to work through as parents, right? And we do that through cycles of discipline and love and encouragement, right? We do those things. Why? Because we want a better life for them, and that's what God wants for us. And so the instruction that God brings is not instruction to weigh you down and make you feel like, oh, man, this is such a miserable life. It's to set you free, and that's what the truth does. Let's stand to our feet in here today as we close. If you're online, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just pausing what you're doing. I want to take a moment and pray for those who are in here and, and, and do not have a relationship with Christ or you're watching online and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but today you would say, I want to make that decision I want to pray with you in just a moment. We're going to have a prayer team available in the back. And if you make that decision here, please go to the back. Let us know. Uh, if you're making that decision online, you can let somebody in the chat know. You can shoot an email over. They'll drop the email into the chat for you right now. Uh, and, then, and then I also want to just pray for, uh, uh, for those in here who would just be like, God, I just want to know you more and I want you to reveal yourself. That was the prayer David made in Psalm 139. You know, he's like, God, you know everything about me, every hair on my head. You know them all, but even so, search me and know me. See if there be anything wicked in me. And if that's your prayer today and you would say, God, I, I just, I want to know if there's anything in my life that I can transform to make my life better. I want you to reveal it. That's who I want to pray with as well. So if you would right now, let's just bow our heads. Father, we love you and we thank you. You are good. And we come right now with those who would say, Jesus, I'm not living for you. I don't know you. I need to get my life together. I acknowledge that I cannot save myself. And so I rely on you. And today they are making a decision by declaring that Jesus is Lord of their life. Father, I pray that you would meet them there right now and begin the transformation in their lives as you are claiming them as your own. And Father, for those that are in the room today who they really, we, we want to walk closer to you. We want to hear your voice. We want to, to, to be in a position that we can be found holy and righteous before you. And Father, we know that that means that a lot of the things that we bring in and the things that we uh, sort out on our own, they don't line up with you. They don't honor you. And God, we want that to be the case. We want to honor you and, and, and be in a position where we can serve you. And so God, for those that are in that place today, Father, I pray that you would meet them and that you would minister to them. In your mighty name, amen, amen.